So I want to introduce my sons and Rob, <laughs> Rob McCoy. Let's welcome Rob McCoy. Introduce me. I want to. <laughs> okay, okay. I'll just keep doing it. It's going to be habit forming. At least I was so blessed by that. I, I have been to a lot of churches. And I've yet to see a church celebrate conception. Um, you know, and, and we're, we're cautious, first trimester. You know, and my daughter, she's gone through difficult times. And, and they're in the midst of um, a possible adoption. They have four of their own. I'll tell you this quick story. <laughs> because he was declaring that we were detrimental to the county and we were super spreaders. We weren't super spreaders of the virus, we were super spreaders of courage, yeah. 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 which is what you guys were. Immunity by community. So. Yeah. And you know what? If you're wearing a mask, this isn't a dig at you because you, you've probably researched it and there's something significant with your comorbidities. And, but the reality is we are not plants. Right. We, we don't know how to photosynthesize. We don't know what to do with carbon dioxide. We need oxygen to live. And wearing a mask is, um, it, it, it may psychologically comfort you, but the reality is they just had an extensive study, the most comprehensive study since, since the uh, virus, and they just pointed out even N95s are worthless. It's like throwing sand at a fence and thinking that the fence is gonna catch the sand. And the most protected human being in, in, in the country was the President of the United States, uh, and you couldn't come into his presence without a COVID test. And I had met him, and I had that stupid thing shoved up my nostril. And yet he still got COVID. Because you know why? A virus is going to do what a virus does. And so when we quarantine people um, through the warmer months where they're getting vitamin D and their immune system's getting stronger, and then we release them in the winter, it was almost calculated what they did. 
And, and I watched as, as our health officer did this, and he made our life, literally my family and our congregation, a living hell. Dr. Robert Levin. In the midst of it, my daughter was pregnant with twins. Um, well, let me back it up. My daughter was pregnant with a, a baby and made it to the third trimester. Uh, Theodore Elkin, little Theodore. And he died in the third trimester. My daughter wanted him to be delivered and wanted to pray over him and thank the Lord because we value life. Yeah. And the Lord yes. giveth and the Lord taketh away. Yeah. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yes. And Theodore was a gift from God. Yes. And he was born. Now, there were no hospitals that were willing to do the birth of a baby that had already passed. Except for one obscure hospital in Santa Paula, California, which is part of Ventura County. And my daughter and my son-in-law had to drive a great distance to get there. And it was a mother-daughter team, who were both physicians, um, and they delivered that baby. And it was, uh, it was a holy moment where the nurses were weeping and the doctors were weeping, the mother and daughter. And it was, it was profound. And my daughter has, she's sensitive to the things of the Lord. She has a gift of discernment and sensitivity to the, the third person of the Trinity that we so misunderstand, the Holy Spirit. And he speaks to her. And, and, and it was just such a profound moment and tears like you can't imagine. And God was honoring life. And my daughter was healed and strengthened through the process. And my bitterness at that moment that in the midst of all this, I, I felt like, Lord, you, you took my grandson. And I, I didn't blame him, but I, I felt like the pressure that my kids were under as a result of what Dr. Levin had done. And I didn't share that with anyone, I was just upset. And it was, I, it was, a, it was turmoil in my soul. And I had been praying about what I'm supposed to share, and, and when you came up and you, you talked about how you're your heart has been expanded to see others and, and the capacity to bring them in and, and to enter into their world. I, I, didn't, I didn't prepare to do that. And yet you confirmed what the Lord had put on my heart to speak. And then when you prayed over that little baby, it took me right back to that day. My son-in-law is like a cyborg. There's just no emotion in him. <laughs> and when you, when you see him weep, it's hard to see a strong man cry. And then they were rejoicing and called me. And they said, Dad, you, you, you won't believe it. And I said, what? And they said, the mother and daughter team you know who they were? They didn't know who we were because our last name is Stevens. But do you know who they were? And I said, no. They said, it was the wife and the daughter of Dr. Robert Levin. The man responsible for my greatest pain, his family was responsible for our greatest comfort. That's the economy of God's grace. I, I had to tell the Lord I was sorry and ask for his forgiveness. And I began to pray for Dr. Robert Levin, not as an enemy, but as an opportunity. And then um, my daughter was pregnant with twins. One passed, and then Abel was born in the midst of all this. And uh, 
that little boy, he's just special. We don't have favorites. Parents don't. But uh, <laughs> uh, grandparents don't either. This one has knitted his way into my heart. He's just a little cherub. Oh, my eyes are sweating. <laughs> so that brings us to what the Lord put on my heart for all of you. You guys are like, hey, let's talk about Romans 13 and let's talk about politics and let's talk about defying tyranny. And uh, no, I'm going to talk about something that the country needs desperately. And, and very much so in Michigan. And I know this because it's so much like California. You've been cheated. And, and you're bitter. And there's tension. And there's division. There's lingering wounds. Others have exploited, taken advantage of you. They've destroyed your workplace, your schools, with this ideology. And it's, it's hard to separate the ideology from the individual. You, you were in the place that I was with Dr. Robert Levin here. You want to call him the devil. You don't, you, there's people out there that you, you don't want anything to do with. And that's a problematic place to be. One of my favorite people in scriptures, my favorite person, is the only one ever given this title, a man after God's own heart, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He was a worshiper. He wrote so many of the psalms. He loved to sing. He was a warrior and... Um, he had blood on his hands. He couldn't build the temple. Solomon took that. He was, a, he was a great king. He was a terrible father. He's a lot like Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith did a, a wonder for the Calvary Chapel movement, but his kids were all lost. They came around later, but... I'm not going to stand before God and give an accounting of my time with the congregation. He's going to ask me what I did with the children he entrusted to my care. I'm not going to be able to blame the schools or the teachers. I, I am the one accountable. I am a steward over their lives. I'm going to stand before him. And so if I don't have a ministry to my wife and my kids, I don't have a ministry. And that's taken me a while to learn. And I'm grateful that my, my Lord gave me a wife who is precious. And she's a good mom. And uh, she keeps the home fires burning. She's precious. Uh, and and I'm, I'm blessed more than I deserve. And she, she understands the power of forgiveness. <laughs> I am gifted at offending. <laughs> and I've, I've learned a very secret, powerful phrase that all men should learn. I was wrong. Another one or two is, I am sorry. Another one is, will you forgive me? And, 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 and a, a weak man is a man who says to his wife, wife, submit. That, that's, a, that's a spineless man. Because you have no authority. You're having to declare something that you don't deserve. Now, of course, it says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. That's a, 
That's a willing submission. And there's no man worthy of submission, but God's saying, you're not submitting to them, you're submitting to me. I am worthy, and I'm asking you to submit to him because he is a work in progress. And if he doesn't listen to me, I'll hinder his prayers. And he's really good at that. I remember one time I was in such a turmoil and I had had surgery on my back and I got addicted to opiates and gotten extra scripts and I was hiding them everywhere. And I finally, the return on investment was so overwhelming. And if you're standing in judgment on me like, ooh, that's, be careful because lightning still can hit in here. And <laughs> he was without sin, cast the first stone. And, and I got news for you. I'm not here because I'm better than you. I'm here because, and I remember telling this to the Lord, I remember saying, Lord, if I'm dealing with this, I can't imagine what the congregation's dealing with. And God said, no, no, you're the worst. (laughs) It was very comforting and also very convicting at the same time. It was humbling because the Lord said, I take the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. You're there, Rob, because they look at you and they say, if he can do it, Anybody can do it. I'm not here because I'm special. I'm here because he wants to make a point. And so my life belongs to him, even the dirty parts that God redeemed. And that's why I don't like to revisit it, but I share it because it's not mine, it's his. I don't count my life dear to myself, it's not my own. I've been purchased with a price. I'm his. And so I, I was struggling through this season, and, and if you've ever been addicted, there's a thing called the law of diminishing return. You take more and you get less of a high, and, and, then, and, and, and then it's just, you gotta take a ton of it just to get back to where you were normal, and, and drugs are, it's an illusion. It, it picks you up, but where it, where it leaves you is further back than where you started. And, and you're, you, you, just get, you just get a pause button on your life, and you don't mature. And your family moves on without you. And you, you miss those special moments. And you think you're productive, but you're not. And you think you're there, but you aren't. It's an illusion. You're avoiding pain. Pain is God's declaration that something is wrong. It's a gift from God, pain is, by the way. Pain is a gift from God. It's what Dr. Paul Brand said, who was the foremost um, specialist for Hansen's disease. He was knighted by the Queen of England. He, uh, he was raised by missionary parents in the Kohli Hills of India and then went to England during World War II and got his medical degree, went back to India, worked with uh, the folks there. His father had died on the mission field. His mother stayed in the Kohli Hills into her late 90s. They called her uh, the, the mother of the Kohli Hills. And she ministered in India. And then he, he spent the last portion of his life in America but he understood Hansen's disease better than anyone else in the, in the world. Hansen's disease, if you don't know what it is, about 100,000 people a year uh, contract it. And um, you know it as leprosy. 100,000 people, it's not a real common, and it's not super contagious. It's, and and, and you're, it doesn't cause your body to rot and your limbs to fall off. You know, people think that. They think, leprosy, I'm not half the man I used to be. All my limbs are falling off of me. Oh, leprosy. 
What do you call lepers in a hot tub? Soup. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Back up. Come on. There's the line. Rob went over it. <laughs> Just trying to keep you with me, and I've lost y'all. That's, that's 20 years of youth ministry. My bad. But Hansen's disease uh, isn't your limbs rotting. What happens is um, you lose all ability to feel pain. So they step on a nail, and they don't know they did it. And then the gangrene sets in, and then the stench, and, uh, and they, they, they don't feel anything. They, they reach into the hot coals, and then they grab a hot plate out of the oven, they, and they, they hear sizzling, but they don't know what it is. And it's their hands burning. They, they compound fracture on their ankle, and they're, they're running on a broken leg as a stump, as a bone is protruding through, and they don't even know it. It's, they're... they're they, they, have, they have testimonies of children that have bitten their fingers so badly and they paint this, the walls with the blood from their fingers because they're amazed by it. And they don't feel anything. And, and Dr. Brand said, the gift I wished for all my patients was the gift of pain because it is a gift from God. Pain tells us something is terribly wrong. When I had blown out a disc in my back, I got rid of the pain, which is what we all try to do. And so we did opiates. I remember I, I, was, I had never taken an opiate in my life. I went to the emergency room. I had to ride in the back seat of the car like a dog on all fours. I crawled into the hospital. I remember they saw what pain I was in. They gave me a shot of morphine. That's the first time they gave it to me. And I remember when that hit my bloodstream, I thought, if everybody was on this, there'd be world peace. <laughs> I love you. I don't know you, but I love you. Well, yeah, the pain went away, but the back was still out of alignment because I didn't do any core sit-ups. I didn't exercise. I'd blown a disc out in my back. My posture was terrible. But I didn't want to deal with doing the hard thing. I just wanted something to make the pain go away. You know why you have a headache? You're dehydrated. You're not drinking enough water. Your diet is terrible. But you just take Excedrin or Advil and extra super strength, you know. I haven't got time for the pain. And you just run from pain. And everything in your life is the avoidance of pain. But remember this, you've been redeemed because your Savior, your Savior walked the Via Dolorosa, the way of pain. He endured the cross, the pain, because of the joy that was set before him. Sin is painful. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but the end therein is death. And he had to turn the tide of the entropy and bring life by absorbing the pain and the consequences of a life outside the will of God, the laws of nature and nature's God. You don't operate in that context and expect to do well. And our culture is going through pain. We're going through relational pain because we have hurt one another deeply. We have found ourselves removing from the fidelity of the strength of a family, as God outlines in Ephesians 5 and 6. And we have, we have taken... Um, a life raft, and we've jumped into the boat, and we've, we've, we've abandoned ship of the family, and we've, we've, 
we've now gone to a separate relationship because it's too hard over here. The kids are, are demanding and my, my spouse is not understanding and, and this person gets me. And then, then the destruction begins and the kids are hurt. Some of you are children from divorce. And now this umbrella, submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives, husband, husbands and wives, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So God is the umbrella. And then wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, husband. And then children, obey your parents. It'll go well with you. Live long in the earth, wives. And then children. And the weak is physically and emotionally are the kids, and they have the most layers of protection. And the wife physically is weaker. And if you doubt that, it's, men are now dominating female sports. And I'd like to know where the feminists are now, because we have now taken over your sports and nobody's saying anything. I, the guy that, that got athlete of the year for the NC2A, the swimmer in Pennsylvania, he swam my event, the 500 freestyle. I was faster than he was. I could have been an NC2A division champion, women's, if I had only <laughs> thought about that back then. And so, so women physically, and, and when, I was, when I was 14 years old, there wasn't a woman on the planet who could swim faster than me. That, that's not a dig. And we're, we're equal in the eyes of God, just not in capacity, but in dignity. And, and, then, and then husbands, and then God. And so when you destroy that building block, the ones that are most vulnerable are the ones that attack. So in a divorced family, the children are, are left open to molestation as wolves encircle the weakened family and they smell the wounded. My daughter we adopted from Russia when she was 12 didn't find out till later that she had been molested and raped and sold into prostitution and had to deal with it. It was like a, a rusty valve that opened up and the sludge came out. But God healed her of that. But I remember the, the creepiest guys would come driving around because she had posted stuff on the internet and, and you just saw these wolves coming out of the woodwork. And there's predators out there. And they hurt. And I share all that because we're in a nation that has dived into immorality. We have allowed our children to be subject to indoctrination. We have brought the world into our homes and we have participated in things that lead to their destruction. We, we, we say we love God with our lips, but our lives and our families are far from him in many respects. And the wounding that has taken place, if God is going to move in and amongst his people, there is something very, very, very profound that has to happen. And, and this is what God woke me up this morning to give to the fellowship here. I, I, this is not a typical message for me. Uh, so if you would, please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. Some of you are going, well, let's get to the word finally. Well, if you know how I teach, my introductions are very long. <laughs> and you invited me. At least he did, and she did, and she did. It's their fault. I have practiced that. It's the woman you gave me, Lord. <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 15. Let me give you context if you look at me, and then we'll read momentarily. David is older not old, he's just older. I'm not old. I'm not going to ever be old. I'm just going to get older. 
In the, in the span of eternity, I am just a little infant. And, and age is how you feel. Yeah, I'm, I feel older. <laughs> but I'm not old. This isn't a walker. It's, <laughs> it's a portable pulpit. <laughs> that, I don't know where that came from. All right, let's, let's get back. So, so David's older. Now, remember, he's a great king. He's a terrible dad. And there's one of his kids. His name is Absalom. This guy's a piece of work. Absalom's got Fabio hair. You know Fabio? He was a commercial actor. His hair was flowing. And he'd ride horses with his blonde hair flowing. Actually, Absalom ended up getting stuck in a tree with his hair. And then I think it was um, Joab who speared him to death, killed him. Absalom just wanted his dad's attention. So he took chariots and he rode up and down the streets of Jerusalem. It it wasn't a big city back then. And he had to, and it's like turning a big bus around to go back the other direction. Hey, okay. An 18-point turn. And Absalom was just, and he he sat at the city gate and and he, he won the hearts of the people. And they would say, well, if only the king were like his son, you understand us. And Absalom started to believe his own press. Yes, yes, that's true. I do understand. And by the way, any donkey can knock down a barn door, but only a carpenter can build one. I'm, I'm very, very suspicious of deconstructionists. We're deconstructing a hamburger. <laughs> You're messing with perfection. <laughs> Tracking me? Yeah. And, and, you know, the secular progressive, all that means is we know how to, they, they only know how to destroy, they know how to build. Any rebel knows how to rebel, they don't know how to lead. So Absalom, you know, Absalom was born on third base and thought he hit a triple. He's got no calluses on his hands, he's got a silver spoon in his mouth, and he was, he's been afforded the wealth of the kingdom that his father suffered and and endured pain to establish as Saul tried to kill him and he was chased like a fugitive through the the deserts of Israel. And now as he's older, Absalom starts to rise in power as he's stolen the kingdom and he creates a rebellion. And uh, David's in trouble because David's older. He doesn't have the fight in him. He would actually fade on the battlefield when he was up against a giant, and they would finally, the men would come to him and say, King, you don't go out to battle with us anymore. Your, your, your wisdom is far more valuable to us than your sword. So we need you to stay back, because we have to spend so much time protecting you. We still want you to lead, but we don't want you in the battlefield, because it consumes us to, to protect you. And that was hard for David to receive. It's like when my father, who had Alzheimer's, so we had to take the keys from him. And I'm the youngest of four, and they gave me the job. I'm like, thanks so much. And I remember telling him, and he goes, it's come to this? I go, yeah, Dad. I mean, I can either do it or you can have a police officer do it. 
And I'm not the guy that wants to do that to you. He goes, I understand. He says, okay, son. He's a good man. But it's hard, you know? Well, that was David. He was getting older, but he wasn't old. And now Absalom's rebelling, and now we're at 2 Samuel chapter 15. I'm only going to read a portion of it, and, and this will make me feel more at home, because this is what we do at God Speak, and it's, a, it's to distinguish between one and the other. Uh, I, have, I have my congregation stand for the reading of the word of the Lord and then sit for the word of the teacher. One we honor, the other we tolerate. So would you stand for the reading of the word of the Lord? I'm in the New King James Version. Um, any other version is uh, heretical. <laughs> you know the best version of the Bible, without exception, is the one you read. Okay, good. With the exception of the New World Translation. Second <laughs> Samuel chapter 15 and verse 30. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up, and he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord. That's an interesting prayer. Listen. O Lord, I pray, turn the council of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshiped God, there was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. Lord, I ask your blessing. Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. May man decrease it. You, Holy Spirit, would increase. Lord, would you do what no man can do? Would you Cause us to come alive to your word, which is living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword, which is able to divide the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Lord, that in the life of your word, as you cause our heart to beat and awaken, would these truths that we receive from you today be embedded deeply, that the actions would find themselves faithful to that which you've placed upon our heart to do. Not my will, but thy will be done. Lord, we want to be obedient servants. Speak now, Lord, as we avail ourselves to receive all you have for us. And we ask this in the matchless, mighty, precious name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right, sit down, relax, but don't get too comfortable. <laughs> Typically, the rabbi would be seated while the students would stand. I'm thinking we need to return to that. <laughs> Kidding. So David hears that Ahithophel is sided with Absalom. Ahithophel. Ahithophel was a Gileonite. He was a convert to Judaism. He, he wasn't a Jew by birth, but he, he came to faith. He brought his family, his son, his son was one of David's mighty men, and it's in 2 Samuel 23, the list of all these men who had received basically the Medal of Honor. Yeah. And, and Ahithophel's son was one of them. Ahithophel had served David faithfully his entire life, and this is shocking to David because it was said of Ahithophel, which we'll see momentarily, 
that when Ahithophel would speak, it was as though the mouth of God himself were speaking. He was the, he was the oracle of God. He was a brilliant human being. And, and David relied on his counsel like you can't imagine. And when he hears that Ahithophel sided with Absalom, he's thinking to himself, it's over. We're done. And he prays a prayer, which is fascinating to me. He says, oh, Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. That's a prayer. I prayed that for Dr. Levin. Different. I just prayed that his turn would be short and another would replace him. And do whatever you got to do, God. <laughs> and so David prays, and what's fascinating is he, he finishes praying, and he goes up to the top of the mountain where he worships God. He gets his eyes off the things of the world and his eyes on the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. You know, that was when it seemed as though politically everything had collapsed. And yet, the prophet sees the Lord. It's amazing time spent in the worship of God causes all of these things in the peripheral to just, it's perspective. It's like walking out into the battlefield with David and Goliath in the Valley of Elah and, 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 and all the Israelites had been paralyzed as he's mocked them. And this ruddy little boy runs out. And this is a nine foot, 10 inch giant who is covered in, in Leviathan scales of bronze. And the only portion of his body exposed is right here. And, and, and his spear is, the, is a weaver's beam and, and the tip of it is like a shot put. You're not taking this guy down. And he, he's, he's not Manute Bowl. He, he's, he, he's Mike Tyson, he, he, but he knows how to trash talk. You know, it's like, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to rip your head. No, it's like, I'm going to rip you apart, and I'm going to feed your body to the birds of the air. Oh. And when David's confronted by that, he goes, he, he didn't know how to respond. He goes, I, I, I'm going to cut your head off, and then feed you to the birds and car air thing, you see. <laughs> and then Goliath starts running at him, and he's used to people running away and going to change their underwear, but David goes running after him. And his smooth stone, and he's swinging that thing, the most inaccurate weapon ever devised by man. And do it on the run. Let's that sucker go. I think it went that way. One of the angels, six wings, grabs the other. And then Michael, I got it. And then David gets up to the body. He's like, I said I'd cut his head off. And he doesn't have a sword. He pulls Goliath's sword out of the sheath. He puts it over the neck. He's like, Voompa, And he can't cut through the neck. He's going to bounce up and down on it. Just cut through it. Lift it up with the entrails and hold the head. <laughs> so, I don't know why I shared that. But it felt so good. I will say this. The, the, the beauty of David, people think, people think that 
That's a story on how to defeat a giant. It's not. The passage begins by saying it was in Sukkoth Damon, which belonged to Judah. The story was how content God's people were to allow God's enemies to occupy territory that belongs to God. And all we see is a giant, a perspective. David didn't see a giant. Matter of fact, they called him a giant, they called him Goliath by name, and they called him a champion. David never invoked those words. He called him a reproach and a defiler of the armies of Israel and an uncircumcised Philistine. He didn't walk out going, oh, a giant, a champion. He went, it's a reproach. He's a defiler. He's uncircumcised. He has no covenant with God. David didn't see a nine-foot, ten-inch giant. His perspective was God's, who holds the heavens in the span of his hand. You come down here to the Milky Way galaxy, and you come to our solar system, and you come down there to the earth, and you go over there to the Middle East, and then you find Israel. <laughs> There's the Valley of Elah right there. <laughs> There's Goliath in your water. God's like. (laughs) (laughs) Squish your head, squish your head. It's it's all perspective. David understood that, and, and, and now he's, he's up against something overwhelming. It's family. And, and it's his most trusted counselor coming against him. Everything's unraveling. That's what broke my heart the most about COVID is men I had prayed with and labored with for over 20 years just abandoned People I thought would stand with me did, and people I didn't think would stand did. It was, it, was, it was shocking. And the betrayal, politically too, I went through some of that. I won't go through all of it, but David realized that this is problematic. And in the midst of all this, he worships God and gets his perspective straight. And while he's worshiping, this guy named Hushai the Archite approaches David. He says, hey, and he's... he's He's torn his robe and he's got dust on his head because he's a servant of David. And he's, he's one of David's counselors, just like Ahithophel, but he's kind of secondary. Ahithophel is the man. Hushai's like the second man. And Hushai comes and he pledges his allegiance to David. And David says, look, dude, I don't need you here on the other side of the Kidron. I need you to go to Absalom and, and feign allegiance to him. And get involved, and, and you got to do something for me. This is what I need you. I need you to go and thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. If, if Absalom listens to Ahithophel, we're done. And Hushai's like, all right, boss. And he goes. Takes us to 2 Samuel 16 and verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. I mean, I, I know how to rebel, but I don't know how to lead. Help me here, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. 
Then the hands of all who were with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired of the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. This is the wisest counsel you can receive. Go and violate the concubines in the presence of all of Israel and show them that you have defiled his house and it's yours now. Mark the territory. And then we jump to chapter 17. Absalom and all the men of Israel said the advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. Ahithophel went on to tell Absalom, listen, give me 12,000 men and I will hunt David down tonight. You can't wait another moment. You give that guy a chance to, to get into the wilderness. He will gather people to himself. He's wily and he's sneaky. Give me 12,000 men. I'll hunt him down tonight. They're exhausted. I will only kill him. I will personally kill him. I won't kill another soul, and they'll all join you once he's dead. And that was brilliant, because David was exhausted, and so were all the people who were with him, because David's older. And Absalom hears this counsel. He's already taken Ahithophel's counsel with the concubines, but now the counsel of how to conquer David. And Hushai arrives... And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. Because Hushai came up and he goes, you know, the counsel of Ahithophel, and he was, he was, God gave him the ability because God was thwarting the counsel of Ahithophel. Hushai comes up and says, the counsel that Ahithophel is giving is not acceptable. It's not good, O king. Um, and he appeals to the, to the ego of Ahithophel, he says, or to, excuse me, of Absalom. He says, king. You want to gather the people towards you and you ride on your white steed with your Fabio hair and they're behind you. The king will, will fold and the people will join you. No blood needs to be shed. And your, your, your father will submit before you. And he was like, oh yes. Finally, my dad will recognize me. And so he denies the counsel of Ahithophel and accepts the counsel of Hushai the archite, and he says it's better than that of Ahithophel. For the Lord had purposed to defeat, listen, the Lord had purposed to defeat the good count, the advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. Hushai warns David to escape, and then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, thus and so Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus so I have advised. And then it goes on to say, now when Ahithophel, verse 23 of chapter 17, now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled his donkey and arose and went home to his house and to the city. And then he put his household in order and he hanged himself and died and he was buried in his father's tomb. I was a sheriff's chaplain. I arrived on the scene in Dos Vientos, California to a suicide. I had to comfort the wife and the two children as the husband Father had taken his life with a 38 revolver. But before he died, he made sure that all the bills were paid and laid out and where the insurance money was. He thought he was doing his family a favor, and all he left was heartache. Suicide selfish. Sometimes it's invoked by the drugs that doctors poorly prescribe. It brings depression and thoughts of suicide, but Oftentimes when you do this, you, you want revenge on somebody and, and you're so convinced God can't help you that you're gonna take your baseball bat and your ball and you're gonna go home. 
You don't trust the Lord. And you know what? You're running from pain. And all you do is leave more pain. Some of you have experienced that in your families. Well, Ahithophel was so burdened by this that he went and hanged himself. Put his house in order, paid all the bills, and then took his life. Now let's back the bus up. Why? Why did he do that? Because God thwarted his counsel. Now let's back it up further. Ahithophel served David his entire adult life. He was so faithful and his entire family was committed to David. He was David's greatest counselor, and when he spoke, it was though the mouth of God himself were speaking. His family was committed to the cause of the kingdom to the point where Eliam had won the Medal of Honor in David's mighty men. And you want to make matters worse. Eliam, he's listed twice in Scripture, once as the son of Ahithophel and 2 Samuel 23. The other time is when David calls for Bathsheba and says, who is that woman? And they say that that's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. You see, Bathsheba was Ahithophel's granddaughter. David committed two sins for which there was no sacrifice in all of Israel, adultery and murder. There's no secrets in the palace when he called Bathsheba's husband from the front line, Uriah. David had impregnated her, called Uriah off the lines and said, go and sleep with your wife. All of the palace personnel spoke. There's no secrets in the palace. Uriah knew what was up. He publicly laid in front of the house and didn't go past the threshold into his wife. He knew what was up. But David had all the power. And so David put a hit on him. He sent him back to the front lines. He told Joab to pull back the forces as they attack the wall and leave him exposed so he can be killed. David murdered him. He didn't kill him with his own hand, but he called for the death of him. It's murder. That's why God says you don't need a gun to kill someone. Your words will do just fine. You're stupid and you're ugly and I wish you'd never been born. And your mother and I hate you. You don't need a gun to kill a kid. Some of you have heard those words in your life. You don't get to pick the parents you get in this world, but you can pick the kind of parent you're going to be. God has the ability of restoring and giving you a new hope, a new father, a new example. The problem is God casts our sin as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. He has the ability to forget. We can't forget. We, we live in remembrance. Let's back the bus up again. David violated Ahithophel's granddaughter. He murdered Ahithophel's grandson-in-law. He humiliated a Medal of Honor recipient, Eliam. He took all the years of faithfulness from Ahithophel and he wiped the floor with him. 
He committed adultery and murder upon a faithful family, and God thwarts Ahithophel's counsel? God, you got the wrong guy. This man's been abused by that king. Stay with me. You're like, where's he going with this? This is scary. (laughs) (laughs) But he got the wrong guy. Or so we would think. And that's how we feel when we've been hurt. Love your neighbors yourself. Pete, if you wrong me, and you come to me and you say, Rob, you insulted the congregation, the words you said affected me and it hurt. Your actions were painful. My, would, my response to you would be, Pete, that wasn't my intention. I'm so sorry. I want you to judge me on my intentions. You're judging me on my actions. But if I'm wronged, I want to judge you on your actions. Right? So if we love our neighbors ourselves, what we need to do is judge ourselves on our actions and judge others on their intentions. And love hopes all things. Well, that would do interpersonal relationships a great service if we were willing to go that extra mile to step through those boundaries that we've created with those who've hurt us. We give them the benefit of the doubt and we seek to know their intentions. You tracking me? God got the wrong guy, or did he? And we know this much. Ahithophel sided with Absalom, and he had waited a long time as he simmered in the bitterness. And by the way, bitterness and unforgiveness is a prison you lock yourself into while you give the person you hate the key. You give them control over your life. It's a poisonous pill you swallow while you wait for the one you hate to die. And you're the one who's dying. And you're imprisoned. And Hithophel simmered in this prison of unforgiveness, calculating, formulating revenge. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But he formulated. And now was his opportunity to strike in his first opportunity with Ahithophel, David's son. And David doesn't know how to raise a family. My son exceeds his. My son is one of the mighty men. Yours is a spoon, silver spoon fed, pansy handed, worthless son of a king. But I will play him like a fiddle. And now it's my turn to get him back. Absalom, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go on the rooftop and violate every one of the concubines like he violated my granddaughter. Hmm. And then give me 12,000 men and I'll hunt him down and I will kill him myself. I will put a spear through his chest and kill him just like he killed my grandson-in-law. But God thwarted the counsel of Ahithophel. Why? Why? Matthew 18 and verse 31. 
Jesus speaking of a parable when he was asked, how many times should I forgive my brother? He said, 70 times seven. And he tells a story about a servant who had owed his master 10,000 talents. A talent was a year's wages. He owed him 10,000 years of wages. A denarii is a day's wages. The other man owed 100 days wages. This man owed 10,000 years of wages. And he asked the master to have mercy on him. And the master did. And the master never called him wicked until the conclusion of the parable. In verse 31, so when his fellow servants saw what had been done, meaning he had been forgiven the 10,000 years of debt, he went back and found the guy who owed him 100 days and strangled him and say, pay me every penny you owe me. And the other servants saw that and told the master. And the master was informed by the fellow servants. They were very grieved and came and told the master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. The one thing God doesn't tolerate from his children is unforgiveness. I had three girls, actually two. We adopted Natasha later, but we'd had a miscarriage, two daughters, and Michelle had a miscarriage. And she almost died from the first miscarriage. The second one scared her, and I think that was about it for kids. I wasn't going to push her. I remember after the first miscarriage, she was so ashen gray, I couldn't tell where her lips ended. And her, her face ended and her lips began. She was just so gray. She almost died. I didn't have any sons, but I was content with that. I was up early in the morning. We were so poor we couldn't pay attention. We're living in a house that was leaning. I, I kid you not. On a really busy street across from a biker bar. And I remember having my devotion that morning. I think it was Psalm 127. It says, your sons will be as olive shoots around your table. It was the NIV version, nearly inspired. But it ministered to me. And the Lord spoke to me and he says, you're going to have sons. I said, really, God? Yes. I went in. I was so, so con convinced of it. I, I woke Michelle up. And she is not a morning person. I wake up, hey, what are we doing? Oh, my God. Where's my tea? She's like a five-point Calvinist until her first cup of tea. <laughs> And then she softens. I'm so happy to see you now that I've had my tea. You're special. You're my husband? Yes. I thought you were the devil. <laughs> so I go and I wake her up. And I go, honey, 
look at the passage. The Lord told me we're going to have sons. He's like, you didn't tell me. I'm going back to bed. <laughs> I didn't go as I planned. I go back and I go, well, Lord, you know, okay. And about a week passed and Michelle comes in with an EPT stick. And she says, I'm pregnant. I'm like, see, I told you. And we waited and we went to the doctor's office for the trimester checkup. The doctors work in the ultrasound device. And we told the doctor, we, we don't want to know if it's a boy or a girl. Just take the ultrasound, write down the sex of the baby and put it in an envelope. And the doctor does that, puts it in the envelope. And Michelle and I agreed that we would pray separately and we would put a name that God gave us into the envelope. And we'd open it at Christmas because the baby was due in April. So it's Christmas. We're at my in-law's house. We open the envelope. It's a boy, and we both wrote down the name Daniel. That's trippy. I don't know about you, but that's pretty cool. <laughs> and I was, I, was, I was just floored. And I called my mother, who was, there's a French word to describe her. She was a bit of a biatch. She's in heaven now going, you're right, I was. She's a believer now. And she had a change. And, and I'm not being disrespectful. She knows it. Right, Mom? See? You can, anyways, where was I? And I, I, I called her and I said, Mom, I'm so excited to tell you something. She goes, what is it? And she wasn't a believer at the time. I go, so... Michelle's pregnant, and we went to the doctor's office, and the Lord had given me a passage of script, and I told her the whole thing. And then we put the names, and we prayed separately, and we put them in an envelope, and then we were going to wait till Christmas to open it and find out the sex of the baby and the names. And the name is a boy, just like the Lord told me, and the names are Daniel. And my mother says, no grandchild of mine will be named Daniel. And, <laughs> and she hangs up the phone. I'm like, what in the world? Now you can see why that French name fits. So I dial her back. I go, you got to explain to me. What, what in the world? Why'd you hang up? She goes, what's your grandfather's name? I go, I don't know. I didn't even know you had a dad. <laughs> she said his name was Daniel Frank McKee, and he was the most awful man who ever lived. And no grandchild of mine will be named Daniel. He left my mom and, and my grandmother when she, she was four. My grandmother died when my mother was 17. She was raised by her aunt. Mom was a tough lady. She had a lot of heartache. And she said, no grandchild of, me, grandchild of mine will be named Daniel. Daniel Frank McKee, the most awful man who ever lived. I said, Mom, the Bible says to honor your mother and father, go well with you, live long on the earth, but... In this instance, I'm going to be honoring my heavenly father who told me to name him Daniel. And I don't want to be disrespectful, but God told me. And she was upset. I was going to use another word, but I, I filtered it. <laughs> We're going to have to take a break because I have to clean the filter. It's just full. And, and, I, and, and I, 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 I remember when the baby was born. He was a cute little kid. My mom was there. 
She held him in her arms. Talk about favorite grandkids. She had 13. He was the one she loved the most. She kept saying his name over and over, emphasizing different parts of it. Daniel. 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 You could just see the Lord ministering to the depths of that pain. Daniel. I said, Mom, you know what it means? What? It means God is my judge. You don't have to stand in unforgiveness with your dad. God's already got that covered. Forgiveness isn't forgetting, Mom. Forgiveness is putting the consequences of what someone did in the hands of the Lord so you can go on with your life. She said, okay. I like his name. I said, I do too, Mom. My mom died loving the Lord. She reconciled. She was precious. Corey Tinboom. was a Dutch woman who was with her sister Betsy and, and they had hidden Jews in their home and then were caught by the SS and sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp where she witnessed her sister Betsy dying at the hands of a German guard. They were able to sneak in a New Testament under a flimsy prison dress and they would host Bible studies in the barracks. They said that's the strange barrack that people have hope. They led countless Jews to Christ before they would be gassed and incinerated. They held those Bible studies and Betsy was murdered. Corey survived miraculously. And at the end of the war with her family decimated and her heart broken, God told her to go back into war-torn Germany and to preach a gospel of a God of forgiveness. She went, she called herself a tramp for the Lord and she found herself in a bombed out, burned out beer hall in Berlin. Maybe it was Munich, I think. Berlin. And she was preaching on a cold German night. No heat in the building. She was bundled up, preached to God of forgiveness. Dimly lit lamps along the center of the room. Lighting was poor on that dark winter German evening, cold. And she gives an opportunity to respond to Christ and no one moves and they exit the building silently save but for one man who is wearing an overcoat and a hat and begins to walk forward with his hands in his pocket and as the light begins to shine on this man's face, Corey recognizes him. He doesn't know who she is but she knows who he is. He's the German guard that killed her sister. And she has hatred for him. Her hands are in her pockets as she's cold. And the German guard approaches her and says, Fraulein, you speak of a God of forgiveness. I know you've suffered at the hands of Nazi Germany. He didn't know to what extent. 
He didn't know she was even in his prison. He said, I know that if you can forgive me, God can. And I ask for your forgiveness. And he puts his hand out in the cold German night. Corey said that his hand hung there in suspension while bitterness kept her hands in her pockets. She had no desire to touch that man nor look at him. But she knew she had to. She said, God, if I supply the action, would you give me the emotion? And in obedience, she put her hand forward and grabbed his. And the joy of the Lord enveloped the two of them, began to weep. She hugged him, forgave him, and she told him who she was and what he had done. And he profusely asked for forgiveness. And he said, your sister was special? She said, yes. She was always thankful, always. At night we would pray and she'd give thanks to the Lord and we were freezing and we were numb and we were laden with lice and wounds. And she would thank the Lord for the lice. She's so crazy and I miss her. There was always hope. And the guard looked at her and he said, she gave thanks for the lice? Yes. He said, do you know why we never came into your building to stop your Bible studies? We were afraid of the lice. God has a way of using all things together for good, even your pain. You keep control of it and you don't forgive. That's not a good place to be. You're not a weapon in the hands of the Lord. You're a weapon in the hands of the enemy. You're a bitter Absalom and a bitter Ahithophel. You see, David understood a secret. Yes, he had committed two sins for which there was no sacrifice in all of Israel, but he said these words, mercy triumphs over judgment. David had saved the citizens of Keilah from the Philistines robbing the threshing floor as Saul was hunting him. God said, go and save the citizens of Keilah. His men said, we can't fight a two-fronted war. Saul and the Philistines, David went back and inquired of the Lord. He was a humble man. And he realized that he was responsible for the death of all of the priests because he had lied to, the, to Abiathar, the high priest. And Doag, the Edomite, made sure that Saul had all of the priests killed, and David took responsibility for that. And now he'd inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, go and save the citizens of Keilah, and he does. And David hears that Saul's gonna come to him because it's a walled city. And you get entrapped in a walled city. And so David inquires of the Lord. He says, is Saul going to come down to Keilah and will the citizens of Keilah betray me? David asks him two questions and God gives him one answer. God says, yes, Saul's coming down. <laughs> David says, Lord, uh, I asked you two questions. You gave me one answer. Second part of the question again, will the citizens of Keilah betray me? It was hard for God even to tell David that. And he said, yes, David, they will. 
He just saved their lives at great expense to himself. I was a lifeguard. I saved a girl who was 12 years old. I gave her mouth-to-mouth and CPR, and she drowned and brought her back to life. And every year on her birthday, she sent me a card. She never betrayed me. I can imagine saving her life, and then she turns me over and, and turns me into the FBI for something. I don't know, just some weird thing. That's what they did to David. He saved their lives in their city, and they betray him to Saul. And you know what the scripture says? David gets on his horse and leaves. He's not bitter. He doesn't call him any names. And you know why? Here's the secret. What is the why in what you're doing? Is it all about you? Because you're dead. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. I is ego, self-preservation. It's not about you. It's about the Lord. And David understood that. He got on his horse and rode out of town. He wasn't bitter because what he did, he didn't do for them. He did as unto the Lord. If you're a spouse in a relationship and, and they're difficult to live with, if they're not beating you or committing adultery, they may be verbally abusive. It's better to live on the corner of a rooftop or in the wilderness than in a house with a contentious spouse. But the reality is there's God's perfect will and his permissive will. And his permissive will becomes his perfect will when you say, I do. And you endeavor through that marriage because there's kids who are depending on you. Because you break that apart and they're going to be bait for the wolves. The secret, if we're going to see an awakening in the body of Christ, is we need to reconcile our interpersonal relationships. And the people in the community that you are upset with, you've got to step into their world and seek their reconciliation. Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. He left the glory of heaven's throne for the humiliation of an earthly cross to reconcile us. And while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Not because we deserved it or we earned it, but he secured it. And if he's willing to forgive us 10,000 years of debt, can't we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and go reconcile with those who've offended us? My mother understood the secret of that. A powerful lesson for a young minister to absorb from a mother that I did not respect and now deeply do. There'll be revival when you're able to let go and forgive. And remember, forgiveness is not forgetting. I know what they did to you. Maybe I don't, but I can imagine. And you can't forget that. Those, those thoughts still pop into your head. I get it. but you don't need to lay awake plotting revenge. Put all of that into God's hands and say, you take care of it. I'm gonna go to sleep now and get on with the rest of my life. You take care of this. He doesn't sleep or slumber. There's no shadow in his turning and there will be justice. There may be mercy if they cry out, but there will be justice if they don't. Let him take it. And I'll share this last story and I'll pray. And I'm gonna call you forward to lay it at the altar and give it to God. I grew up in Coronado, California, 
there was a single mom that had three sons. Her husband had divorced her, and my parents cared for her back when divorce wasn't common. I grew up with the boys. The middle son uh, was a little older than me, but we were, were good friends. And we did things together. I wasn't a believer. Uh, neither was he. We had great times. We'd surf and body surf and, you know, we'd snorkel and scuba dive and we were just in the water all the time. And it was magical. Coronado was a childhood dream growing up. We separated when I went off to school and I became a Christian. He got married, went off to school. I was working for a company called Cheesebro Ponds. I was a divisional manager calling on Bentonville, Arkansas, the headquarters of Walmart. and I was a very important person. <laughs> so I thought. And, and I, I, I was in Coronado visiting my wife's grandmother, and my wife was there as well, and she had a condominium on the penthouse of the Coronado Shores, which overlooks the Pacific Ocean. And I was there, and I had to catch a flight uh, to Dallas, but I called my friend David, and I said, look, I'm going to be in Coronado, you know, old times, let's, let's go body surfing, because it was a magical summer day, and he's like, yeah, yeah, and we'll reconnect, we hadn't talked to each other in 10, 15 years. And I had had a dream two nights before, and it was the weirdest dream, I don't even know where it came from, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm at the beach, and David's there, my friend, and we're building a sandcastle, and this guy comes up and he builds a devil's head with the sandcastle. And he puts a cigarette in the sandcastle. And then I wake up. I'm like, that was weird. It's a boom, bad pizza or something. So David and I get together. We're at the beach. We're body surfing. We surf. We come out. I still got about an hour and 50 minutes before I got to leave to catch my flight. I'm going to take a shower. But I start to share with him about the Lord because he's a Buddhist, he's gone through a divorce. I'm talking about the Lord. I'm telling about a God of forgiveness. And he goes, yeah, I, don't, I, I can't buy that. I go, what do you mean? It's not for sale. You purchase with a price. You just receive it. It's a gift. He goes, I don't, that whole forgiveness thing, I just don't buy it. I go, why? He goes, yeah, bad stuff. I don't even want to go into it. And it was just a hindrance. It was like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Well, all right. So we just small talk. And I go up and I go, hey, listen, he's going to drive me to the airport. I'm going to take a quick shower. I right, sand. I got to get in my suit. So I take a shower, I'm in the shower and I'm praying for him. I said, Lord, help me. If any man lacks wisdom, James, all you need to do is ask of God, God will get free of him. And the Lord reminds me of the dream. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, tell him about the dream. <laughs> no, I didn't like it, why would he lie? It's so stupid. Devil's head with a cigarette. I mean, what, what do you, what? So, <laughs> So I walk out and I'm like, it, it, was, it, was, it was so bizarre. I like giggled when I said it. I was so embarrassed. I go, um, I was praying for you in the shower. I know it's going to sound super stupid. Um, God told me to tell you about the dream I had two nights ago. We were at the beach, you and me, and we were building a sandcastle. And this has to do with your unforgiveness. We were building a sandcastle and some guy came up and built the devil's head on one of the terrapits of the sandcastle and put a cigarette in them in the mouth of this demonic thing. And David looks at me like a deer caught in headlines. What? I'm like, oh. 
I said, it was a dream I had two nights ago, and I, he goes, Rob, that's exactly the issue. That was real, and that guy took me, and he molested me in a hotel room. I go, was I there? He goes, no, you were on the rocks, and it flashback, I remember standing on the rocks as the van's driving away. He said, I wouldn't let you get in. I go, I'm sorry. But God wants you to know that's not your fault. And, 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 I, and that's the first time I understood what forgiveness was. I said, David, you can't forget that, but you can put the consequences of what he did into the hands of God and move on with your life. You don't have to become the perpetrator because you've been a victim. It, it dies with you. He said, okay. I, I came all the way from California, actually Phoenix, in the worst snowstorm I've been in since I was a kid. Now it's beautiful. It's California now. <laughs> and, and I came because there's somebody in the room who needs a touch of the Lord because that bitterness is killing you. Maybe you live with a frustration of a melanin content. Maybe you have a bitterness towards parents or dads or authority figures because you were hurt. I don't know what it is. Do you see how it's destroying the body of Christ? Let's leave it here. You know what the altar is? It's called the slaughter place. Come up here and die to your flesh and live to Christ. Today you're set free. You're a new creature in Christ. You forget what is behind. Strive for what is ahead. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Come and receive the forgiveness of the Lord and extend the forgiveness of the Lord. I'll invite the worship team up. I don't know how you guys do it, but I just figure we'll have a cathartic time. You want to take it, Pete? You want to bring it? Yeah? Okay. Okay, thank you. I feel so talented when they're up here. I'm a musician. I can play a radio. <laughs> I'm an artist. I can draw a bath. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, let's bow our heads. And Psalm 131, uh, I have calmed and quieted my soul. I don't concern myself with matters too profound for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this day forth and forevermore. That was David pouring out his heart to the Lord, not understanding why he couldn't build the temple and why Solomon would get that privilege. And David trusted in God. He knows what you've endured. He knows what you've suffered. He was there when it happened and nothing happens without first passing through the sovereign hand of God. You have endured pain. That pain has prepared you to be a minister. It's equipped you. It's an anvil, as iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. In a fallen world, God uses these instruments together for good to make us instruments of righteousness, to bring healing to the body of Christ. Your bitterness is hindering the use of that gift that God has for you. And today is the day that you surrender that and give it to the Lord. Lord, as we calm and quiet our soul, like a weaned child, no agenda, we settle ourselves, prostrate before you. Spirit of living God, search our hearts, see if there be any wicked way.
let us leave this at the altar and find help and mercy and grace and forgiveness that we would be instruments of righteousness in a fallen world that desperately needs the profound, powerful, and efficacious touch of God. Lord, heal my brothers and sisters. Spirit of living God, fall afresh on us. Holy Spirit, have your way. Draw us to this place of sacrifice where we realize that I, my ego, has been crucified with Christ. You can't insult the dead man. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. Lord, let us do what we do is unto you, not unto our agenda of bitterness and revenge and unforgiveness, but of mercy and grace. Lord, help my brothers and sisters to come to this place and bring your healing, the balm of Gilead. We commit this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we worship, you come to the slaughter place. This is between you and the Lord. You can prostrate, you can pray, you can stand. If there's folks in the fellowship, your pastors and the like, to lay hands on you and pray for you, that'd be great. Um, but this is for, for you before the Lord. And uh, I'm finished now. I'm out of here. No, I'm kidding. No. Let's stand and worship the Lord.